is from 2 Samuel chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Lord, we thank you for the chance to read your word. We thank you for the gift um, that it is and how it reveals who you are to us. I pray that um, you would be with Mark, that you would give him the words to speak, that his, um, his sermon today would be clear, that it would be um, encouraging and convicting, that we would um, act on what your spirit uh, works in us and that we would leave here changed um, and drawing closer towards you. We thank you for the hope uh, in the words that we sang today. We thank you that our salvation is full. And as we read of your provision and your salvation uh, for David, we just pray that we would claim that as our own and trust um, in your sovereignty. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be back together. And you're wondering... Well, I didn't have to stand for 29 verses. Anybody else thinking that? All right, so this passage today, I think is going to be harder than what we expect. Hard as in hard what we're going to hear. Uh, it's going to be hopefully encouraging, but uh, I pray too that it's convicting. Uh, because the, the truth that is spoken through with this chapter uh, gets really right to the heart of who we are as God's people, as, as believers. So as for unbelievers, those who don't know Christ, this is going to be, I don't know, lack of a better word, wonky. They're going to be like, what in the world? Like this is the mindset that God's people are supposed to have in the midst of tribulation and trials? And the answer is yes. This is the mindset we have. This is the reality of what, our world is, who we are as God's people, what the future holds for us as God's people. Um, and so as we go through this, and Naomi read the first four verses, we're going to talk about that. We're going to hit another section. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. We're going to work through this chapter and then see at the end what God has to, to teach us about himself, but then also how we are to react and how we are to live as God's people in this world. Uh, just as a, a little bit of a review, uh, the book of Samuel, so First and Second Samuel, we have two books. Originally, it was one book, and the reason why we have two books is because it was on two scrolls, which makes sense, right? And so one book was written. This, these are all historical events. They really happened, and it was all written and compiled or put together when Judah was in exile in Babylon. So this is after the kings. This is after Babylon comes in and they defeat Judah. The people had rebelled against the Lord, which is why the exile happened. And they find themselves under the thumb of a foreign power, of the Babylonians, just as God had warned them. You disobey me. You rebel against me. You commit adultery with, against me. You will be sent into exile. 
And so they did all that, and they were sent into exile. Just another proof that God keeps his promises, even if it's a negative promise. But the question, as they're sitting in Babylon, as they're wondering, what's going to happen? These are the quest- some of the questions. When, when are they going to return to the promised land? They longed to go back to Israel. They longed for God to restore the temple worship that they once, that they once had. Is it ever going to happen? Or is it just wishful thinking on, on our part? And so this is, this is the audience to which the book of Samuel is written. There are a people who were under the authority and influence of an unbelieving people, the Babylonians, with seemingly very little hope of restoration. Will God actually do what he promised to them and bringing them back and restoring them? In 2 Samuel 17, Israel, too, find themselves under the authority and influence of a false king, Absalom. And so they're asking similar questions. Will David, the Lord's anointed king, be restored to the throne? Because remember, God said, you will always have a son on the throne of Israel. Just wasn't quite expected to be Absalom. Especially when David is still alive. And God had promised, you will live to your old age. You will be king, David, until the day you die. So is David going to come back to the throne? Is he going to be restored to the throne? Or is it just wishful thinking? But the events of this chapter reveal that though all may seem lost, God is still in control. He's still working all things to bring David back to the throne. That's what we've been talking about the last month, really. His sovereignty over all things. How he ordains things. He's providential. God is providential. His hand is in history, moving and working all things according to his will. And God has not changed. He's working things to bring David back to the throne. He has not forgotten his people. He has not forgotten David. And so he commands that Ahithophel, remember the one whose counsel was if was as if one counseled the word of God. That's, that's how important his word was, his counsel was to David and to Absalom. God commanded, ordained, that Ahithophel's counsel would fail. And so the chapter opens with Ahithophel giving sound advice to Absalom. He says, give me 12,000 men right now, and I will pursue David while he's tired, worn out, and discouraged. I will kill him only, and I will spare the people who are with him. David's on the run. He's fleeing with a large group of people, and Ahithophel is right. David had arrived at the Jordan River, weary, forcing him to stop and to be refreshed. He's a sitting duck. He needed the time to rest and regain his strength. And so he might be weak now, But time is on his side. Only if he had more time, then would that benefit him. And Ahithophel's advice, it says, seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and in the eyes of the elders of Israel. But then Absalom explicitly, inexplicitly, calls for Hushai to give his opinion. 
Ahithophel gives counsel as if one speaks of the word of God. And yet Absalom suddenly, well, let's see what Hushai, remember the guy who is David's friend? Let's, let's listen to him. What does he have to say? And Hushai's advice is very, very different from Ahithophel. So if you have your Bibles, your Bible app, open up to 2 Samuel 17. And I'm going to read from verse 5 through 14. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus as has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father, is, your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to, where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into his city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. David may be on the run, Hushai says, but he's still a mighty warrior surrounded by mighty warriors. He's caught in a corner, and he's going to fight like a mother bear robbed of her cubs. 12,000 men, Absalom are not going to be enough against David. Instead, gather all the fighting men of Israel to your side, a number as great as the sand on the seashore. And if David hides in a city, your great army will utterly destroy that city until not even a pebble is to be found there. Hushai is tapping into Absalom's pride, a characteristic that will eventually be Absalom's undoing. A 12,000-man army Let's be honest, it's a big army, right? That's a, that's a lot of men, but not nearly as great an army that could be mustered. Not only was such a number easily conquered David, to bring all of Israel, a huge army against David, it will easily conquer David. It will also display Absalom's power. If you do this, Absalom, success will be inevitable. You see how he's, he's tapping into the pride of Absalom. 
But this advice, besides tapping into his pride, buys time for David. And that's more important. It's going to take a while to uh, muster such a great army. And by the time it sets out, David is going to be in the stronghold of Mahanaim. Amazingly, maybe we shouldn't say amazingly because God commanded it. He ordained it. Absalom takes Hushai's advice, ignoring the good counsel of Ahithophel. In other words, if he would have followed Ahithophel's advice, David would be dead and his men with him. But it seems at this point that Hushai, he gives it his advice, doesn't know what Absalom decides. He's unaware that his efforts were successful because the very next section, he sends two men in secret to warn David of Ahithophel's plans. He says to David, don't wait at the Jordan. Cross over and flee now. That's what he's going to tell him. And once again, God's hand is seen as he works to rescue his king. So now let's continue. Verse 15 through 23. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness. By all means, pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimeaz were waiting at Enregol. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Behurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servant came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimeaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so as Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So the two men, they meet up with a woman at the well on the outskirts of Jerusalem in order to receive Hushai's message for David. But the group, the three of them, are spotted, and Absalom is made aware of the situation. And so the two men flee to Behurim, a few miles outside of town, as Absalom sends his own men after him. And arriving in town, the two hide in a well, which is then covered by a woman with cloth and grain. And as Absalom's servants come to the house, they ask for the whereabouts of the two men, but the woman tells them they have gone over the brook of water. In other words, they're not here. But if you go after them, you may be able to catch them. But after they had sought them and couldn't find them, they returned home. And you say, 
yeah, you just read that. Why would you repeat it? Because does this sound familiar to you if you remember Old Testament biblical history? There's a very familiar and very famous account in the book of Joshua where two men are sent out to spy in the city of Jericho. Is that coming to mind? And when they're noticed, they flee to the house of Rahab where she hides them under stalks of grain. And when those seeking them arrive, Rahab says, they are no longer here. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. That's Joshua chapter 2. Now in both cases, two men are noticed. They flee for their lives. They're saved by a woman who hides them under grain. And in both cases, God intervenes to save them so that his will is accomplished. In one, the destruction of the city of Jericho, and in the other, the safety of David, his anointed king. Now, on the surface, it seems that Absalom's in control of the situation, right? He's got this massive army. He's, he's in Jerusalem. He's on the throne. He's pursuing David. But just as in the case with the spies in Jericho, a divine rescue takes place. God has not left David, nor has he left the people of Israel. He is working all things in accordance to his will. In Jericho, it was that the city would be destroyed. In 2 Samuel 17, the restoration of David to the throne. In the exile in Babylon, sending the people back home eventually. Do you see the connection between all of this? The writer of 2 Samuel is pointing back. This really did happen, but he's seeing what happened in Jericho to communicate to the people, God's in control. It seems like everything is against you, but God is in control. And then the very last section of chapter 17, very last section, starting in verse 24, it just reinforces the idea Who is really in control of this situation? So verse 24, Then David came to Mahanaim, so he made it to the stronghold. And Absalom crossed the Jordan with all of the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set uh, Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, a sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, said of the, of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, of, from Lodear, Lodebar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogam, Rogalim. Just, I love these names. You want to come read this for me, Albert? I would really appreciate it. They brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry, 
and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And so this last section, it gives this final note of actually irony. After assembling his great army, Absalom begins his pursuit of David, but with such a great army, he can't move fast, he can't move quickly. By the time the army crosses the Jordan, it needs to encamp and regroup, which gives David even more time to escape to the stronghold, about 30 miles away from the ford of the River Jordan. Now, 30 miles may not seem too far for us today because we can drive that in, what, 30 minutes or less, depending on if you follow the speed limit, right? That's just nothing. But David didn't have the luxury of a vehicle that can travel and drive 60 miles an hour. They're on horseback, donkey back, and they're walking. Have you ever ridden a bike 30 miles? Yes, there are a few of you. You should all join us for the bike to camp, by the way. 30 miles on a bike. And you go like, oh, no. Well, now you're getting closer to an understanding of how difficult it is. And a bike is way faster than walking. Now, how long would it take you to walk 30 miles? Not like so that I can, you know, get a really good, really, really, really good workout. But a normal walk with food and water on my back. It was not an easy trip for the company of David. And by the time they reached the city, they're weary and thirsty. But once again, God intervenes and he provides in their time of need. Three men, all Gentiles, non-Israelites, bring beds to sleep in, basins to wash in, water to drink, and food to eat. And the irony should not pass us by. David, the anointed king of Israel, is pursued by Israelites and strengthened by Gentiles. Who does that but God? God is working, once again, all things in accordance to his will, which is usually in very unexpected ways. When all seems lost for Israel... God works things in accordance to the fulfillment of his promise. This is a lesson that the spies of Jericho learned. For when they had finally escaped the city, this is what they said, Truly the Lord has given all of the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Which is ironic, again, because it really has nothing to do with Israel, but their God. Those in Jericho and those in Canaan, the land of Canaan, fear Yahweh, not Israel. And also the inhabitants, or uh, the lesson for the Israelites who find themselves in exile under the Babylonian rule, God has promised to bring them back to the promised land, and so no matter how powerful the enemy may seem, the Lord will work all things in accordance to the fulfillment of his promises. This is the hard lesson for us today because God is the same God today that he was at creation, at the battle of Jericho, for David in the wilderness, for Israel in the exile. He is the same God today. For those who call Jesus 
their Savior, treasure, and Lord, we need to hear and understand and hold on to that truth. The New Testament describes us, the church, those who believe in Christ as their Savior, that he saved us from the wrath of God for our sins, those who say he's, he's my treasure, that he's the most important thing to me, or Lord, I want to obey every one of his commands, and I don't do a great job, but he's working on me so that I might be able to obey him more and more because I love him, not to earn his love. For us who are the church, we are described in the New Testament as exiles and aliens in this world. We are but temporary residents here, and we await the homecoming when God calls us to the true promised land, life everlasting in his presence in heaven. But to be honest, we're very similar to Israel and Babylon. If we look around us, we can tend to forget that God is for us and not against us. Because our enemies of Satan, sin, and death seem powerful and everywhere, always working against us. And add that to that list, an unbelieving world who hates us, persecuting, silencing, belittling, and in some cases even taking the lives of fellow believers. See, Second Samuel 17 reminds us that the truth that Paul speaks in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us. In other words, the enemies of God have no chance. The enemies of God's people, they don't stand a chance. God had ordained the spies in Jericho to survive. He had ordained to defeat the council of Ahithophel. He had ordained that Harm would be brought upon the false king Absalom. He had ordained that the people of Judah would be sent into exile in Babylon. He ordained for them to one day return and be restored, which they were. He had ordained that the church would remain here on earth to endure the persecution of a world who hates them. But God has also ordained our salvation. He has ordained that we are and always will be his children, never to be removed from his love. And so, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If the God who sovereignly reigns over all things in the universe is for us, then what can Satan, sin, and death and the world do to us? And you say, well, okay, let's just take history. What can they do to us? They can make life difficult, and they can even take our lives. The church, there are many in the church who have given their life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the truth being spread, standing for the truth in Christ, in God, letting an unbelieving world know this is love, that God died for your sins, and many were killed for it, and are to this day being killed for it. So yes, the world can do some pretty nasty things 
but we shouldn't be surprised. And ultimately, we should not fear. We should not hate. We should not despise the world around us, especially unbelievers. Moses says to the Israelites before they actually entered the promised land, he says this, do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Bread as in eating bread. <laughs> Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now this is in the midst of battles where many lost their lives. Many Israelites were killed battling the Canaanites. And yet he says, do not fear them for God is with you. Christ even tells his disciples, he says, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. Know that it's hated me before they hated you. He also says later in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Which is interesting because the whole section beforehand is bad stuff. Persecution, hardships, living for God, sacrificing of yourself. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In short, God is, this is what, he's, this is what Christ is saying, this is what Moses was saying, this is what God is saying through them. God is going to rescue the church from the hands of our enemies, just as he rescued the spies from the authorities in Jericho, and David from Absalom, and Israel from the Babylonians. We have faced and will continue to face many trials in this world. Being a Christian is no longer a positive in our society. Biblical values are shunned as out of date and bigoted. Counseling someone to fight same-sex attraction will soon become illegal. Parents will lose their children should they deny them transgender surgery. Speaking the truth of God's word will soon be considered a hate crime if it isn't already. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Satan, sin, and death are using the world and our culture to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter 1. And I don't say these things to scare us because we have nothing to fear. I say them to prepare us. In other words, this is what Christ says. Oh, you're being persecuted. Yeah, you should expect it. In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, they will try to take your life. In this world, they will hate you. You should not be surprised. Now, there's other passages that say, our battle is not against flesh and blood, so we shouldn't take the world and say, well, they're our enemies, and then we should just you know, try to destroy them so that we're safe. We should look down upon people because they disagree with us. That's not what Christ says. He says, love them. Care for them. Sacrifice yourself for them in hopes that someday maybe they'll believe. And if they take your life, so be it because your life is in my hands. 
because I have overcome the world. And so you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. When we look at our world, we read the news, we, we can get anxious. We can get upset. We can get mad. We can say, we got to fight back. And then we use the same tactics as the world against them that they use against us. And so don't hear me say we shouldn't, we shouldn't make our, our voices heard. We shouldn't fight in battle in the proper way, but we should do it with humility, as David did. We should place things in the hands of God, as David did. We should trust that God is going to bring to fruition what he promises as he has always done in Scripture and as he has always done throughout all of history. Because when we're fleeing for our lives and it seems that God has forsaken us, we need to remember that Christ has overcome the world. Christ defeated the power defeated, not will defeat, defeated. He has destroyed the power of Satan, sin, and death against us when he died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. We do not fear because of him, not because we're so awesome. We fear nothing because we fear God. Because if God is for us, then who can be against us? No one. No one and nothing. Not the Canaanites, not the false king Absalom, not the Babylonians, and not our world today. They may take our livelihood, they may take our lives, but they can never take us away from the love of, of God in Christ. Our souls as his people are secure. And one day, just as he promised, he will bring us out of exile and bring us to our, his true home, our true home, by his side. That is the confidence we have as God's people. So let the world throw their stuff at us. Let them say things like, God is dead and the church is dying. They've been saying that for 2,000 years. And it ain't going nowhere. If you find yourself listening to these words and I just, you don't believe this, then I have to ask you the question, who does your trust fall upon? If the Christian can say, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Then you have to ask the question, if God is against me, then who can rescue me? No one. No one. And that's why this is a hard passage to hear. As a Christian, to put your trust fully in the power of God that he has ordained things to work as he plans, not as we plan. But if you're an unbeliever, to hear these words and to say your faith in the world or yourself your money, anything else, your family, your kids, that through them, that's what your hope relies on. You're lost. And you will not be rescued if you do not repent of your sins and believe. 
one day, one day Christ is going to come and every knee will bow, whether they like it or not. For us as his people, it will be a joy unspeakable. We say, come Lord Jesus, come. But for those who do not believe, it will be to their shame and they will have no hope of rescue. And so as the church, our, our role, pray for those people, our neighbors, our friends, our family. We know them, our co-workers, our fellow students, our teachers, our politicians. We need to pray that if they do not know Christ, that they would humble themselves before God and put their trust in Him. Pray that God would save them from His wrath, that they would believe. But also as Christians to say and remind ourselves, if God is for us, who can be against us? Not because we're strong, but because we worship the one who is sovereign over all things. Our trust is in Him, not in us. May we remember that this week as we go into the world and preach the good news. Father, help us to take these words to heart, to take this truth to heart that we praise you, Father, that if you are for us, then no one can stand against us because you will command and ordain and work all things to accomplish your will. May we as your people have that confidence and that joy and that peace that's found in your Son, Christ, not in ourselves, not in the things of this world. Help us as your people, Father, to to truly spread the good news, to live a life of humility, to not be like the world and fight back tooth and nail, but to speak the truth, no matter the consequences, to speak what is right with conviction while at the same time being humble and joyful in heart, putting our trust in you. God, you, you are in control of all things. Whatever may come this week, whatever may happen in the future to this country or to this world, in this state or in our neighborhood or in our homes, we trust you, Father, that you will work it all for your good. And Father, may we not suppress your truth your gospel message of your son and unrighteousness. Help us not to suppress it, but to speak it and to live it for your glory and your goodness. May we hold fast to you and trust you no matter what may come. We ask this in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our final song tonight?